Jesus, only Jesus. sing for of your love come with my hands to heaven shout your praises that I was lost in darkness when you pulled me out I will sing for of your love come down
the power of sin and darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings who shakes a whole with holy thunder who leaves his breathless in awe and wonder the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace this is unfailing love that you would take my place that you would bear my cross you lay down your life
Well, good morning. Good morning. Hope you all are doing well. Children, uh, we have only adventurers today, and they're going towards the bank here where Mr. Steve is. So if you're in adventurers class, which is our younger children's church class, you can go. Otherwise, you're in, you're in big church because you're big kids, right? All right. Kaylee agrees. She's a big kid. Is that true, Trey? Yeah, big enough for this. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm going to warn you here because we're now in uh, a bit of a race because you can smell the umami, you know, that, that richness. What? What is umami? Yeah, what is that? Well, it's what the fancy Food Network people refer to, that extra savory, unctuous smell coming from the kitchen like the fifth taste that is part of Asian cuisine, actually, but we use it flexibly. So we got all sorts of umami wafting through here. But y'all are going to be grown-ups about this, right? Uh, right? We're, we're going to pay attention, right? I promise not to take too many extra minutes. Uh, I understand it's a race against mashed potatoes, gravy, and turkey today. Uh, but I hope you stay uh, and enjoy that, even if you kind of forgot that we do this. We started doing it a little bit earlier because everybody leaves town um, these days for a school break, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and it's a little too much, uh, you know, a little too much in that week if we don't. So we're going to observe that today and have our Thanksgiving feast. Um, I do want to remind you before we begin also that there is an opportunity. Now, it's not a necessity, right? I'm not going to bend anybody's arm. But if you would like to give a specific testimony to thankfulness the Sunday before Thanksgiving, which is another Sunday ahead of us, we have an opportunity for a couple folks. Um, that's not, it's, if you really, really, really want to, uh, Pastor Judge, you do not see me, uh, I don't have any handcuffs up here, I'm not putting you in chains, I'm not telling you got to do it, but if you want to do that, let me know, because um, I would like to provide an opportunity for that uh, in our service right before Thanksgiving. Um, so just let me know about that. Uh, this morning we're in First John chapter 3, and I don't think that I, we get to a point, right? I try to tie everything together, but we can't tie everything after a point in all the way back to verse 1. So you're going to have to start remembering some stuff, right? Do you remember what First John is about? Anybody? F- fellowship? I saw the words being mouthed, but you can say it out loud. This is... Uh, this is an open environment in that regard. You can say amen, you can say hallelujah, you can praise Jesus, um, you know, you can do those things, or, and you can answer questions. Sometimes people forget about that. So if I ask you a question, you can answer. It's about fellowship, right? Fellowship is the key to fullness of joy that John has been talking to us about for these chapters, and he has given us multiple aspects to consider. He has established what fellowship is and what its purpose is in our lives, in the church, He has told us how it is that we can remedy fellowship that has 
waned or broken, uh, that has become alienated in, in, in its intimacy because of sinful actions, sins, he says, behaviors that we need to confess. Uh, he has provided for us confidence in doing that. We're describing Jesus himself as our paraclete, which is a unique reference. Uh, normally, we think of God the Spirit as being our paraclete. That's what Jesus referred to in the Gospels. That I will send a helper to you. John turns that around and says, in fact, Jesus is our advocate in this particular context, our paraclete. And he's there with us as we confess our sins to remind us, as I understand it, to the limitations of the context. It's a non-judicial context. And what that means is you're not on trial for your sin. You are confessing your sin and thus telling out, I don't need to be corrected. I don't need discipline in this area anymore. All right? Basically. And then he has moved forward, right, under this joyful consideration. Uh, and he did have to talk about something difficult, which is that there were people who had been supposed to be part of the, the apostolic group, people that were presumed to be part of their fellowship who left because they denied that Jesus was the Messiah. Thus, it was a good thing that they left so that they could be outed, right? Uh, so they could be recognized, so that they could be understood to, to be in the proper location at that point relative to the fellowship that did believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Because it's important. Uh, the level of sacrificial love that we are commanded to express towards each other is is pretty intense. We talked about this in the marital relationship when we talked about Ephesians 5, the husband laying down his life for his wife, but this is, this is important. And John excludes certain things. He says you should not love the world that way. You should not lay your life down, sacrifice that way for the world and its possessions, its things, that opposing system to God. You shouldn't do that. And, though, and so we need to identify what is the world, even when it's invaded the church. Do not love the world or the things of the world, John tells us. Uh, we are not able, we don't have unlimited resources to sacrificially love things. You know that, right? You may have compassion on other people's children, but you cannot love all of the children the same way God asks you to love your children. You may have compassion and sympathy on other people's wives, husbands, but you are prohibited, prohibited from loving other people's wives the way you love your own wife, right? Because you, you I mean, if nothing else, you simply cannot do that. We need to understand what Jesus Christ is asking us to do and to whom we are obligated to, to do it. And John presents love really as the dividing line between those believers who are abiding in Christ and those believers who are not abiding in Christ. And he makes a very stark statement that the difference between believers who are abiding in Christ and those who aren't is based on love and in verse 10, remember, he referred to believers. 
as either children of God or children of the devil. Those are believers there because the dividing line is whether or not they love their brother, right? They love their brother. So it's, it is a term that is used within the context of people who are obligated to love their brothers. Again, you are not obligated to, I mean, okay, so you pull up on your motorcycle like Thaddeus and I did out in Messiah yesterday. We got, he got to go on his first kind of longer ride with me yesterday. We pulled up into Messiah, and there's like 70,000 motorcycles at that gas station in Messiah. You guys know the one if you've been out there. And we didn't do it, but if you walk among them and you got your leather on, even if it's shiny like mine, it's not ruddy and grubby yet because I don't wear it except for like two months of the year. And I've never gone down on my bike, which I consider a plus. But if you walk up and you dress like that, you are likely to be called, hey, brother. Hey, brother. Y'all, some of y'all do that anyway. Well, I'm not grumpy enough to tell him, listen, brother, do you know Jesus Christ? Because that's what I call my brother's. I have three physical human brothers, and the rest of my brothers are the ones that know Jesus. Not everybody is your brother. And unbelievers can hate believers, but they can't hate their brother. Right? We, we agree. Do you understand what I'm saying there? You don't have a brother to hate. And that's the dividing line between the abiding believer and the non-abiding believer is whether they love their brother or not. And it is a stark Tran, tran, uh, distinction, excuse me, not transition. It's not our identity when we do that. In fact, the word, the preposition there, ek, out of the devil. You are behaving with behavior that is source in the devil. Who was a, who sinned from the beginning? When you do that, it's tragic. Equally as tragic as a believer who spends his life loving the world and the things of it. I think. But because, well, listen, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that we are asked to love our brothers in the Lord. Verse 11 says that, and that's where we're beginning, really, the rest of this has been reviewed. It says, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning. You've heard it from the beginning the purp- for the purpose that you should love one another within the, the category here of one another. That category does not include the world. It does not include all the religions of the world. It does not include the people you work with necessarily. It does not include the people you pull up to at the gas station necessarily by default. The one another's are the people within the church, within the body of Christ. It's from the beginning. In, in other places in 1 John... He is referred to the beginning as from the moment you trusted Christ, or from the moment you heard the gospel. And I think that's true here as well. He's saying that that has been a constant command in your life. But the illustration that he uses goes way back much further than that. He says, verse 12, not as Cain. Now that name is among a few real exceptional ones that never makes it into the baby book names. You know? Ahab doesn't make it. Jezebel doesn't make it. Og doesn't make it. The king of Bashan. You know that guy? Well, you would know who that was if you came to Sunday school. Og, the king of Bashan. That doesn't make it. Cain doesn't make it. 
In fact, uh, raising canes even changes the spelling, right? We don't want to raise, that's the saying that they're, they're using, right? Raising cane, but it's a joke, play on words. Not as Cain, who was out of, sourced of, the evil one, and slew his brother. Remember that story. All the billboards, the, the, the right to keep and bear arms billboard you see, right? Cain slew Abel with a rock, but we didn't ban rocks. Well, we don't even know that Cain used a rock, actually, but he slew his brother. He slew his brother, struck him down, first murder in the Bible. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, out of him, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil. That's very particular. Cain behaved in an evil way. That's where the parallel is, right? Can you behave in an evil way? as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a justified individual. Cain got awfully chatty with Yahweh for a guy that didn't believe in him, right? Cain believed in Yahweh. He believed in God's promises. In fact, when God cursed him and said, you're going to wander the earth, Cain, Cain says, whoa, 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 <laughs> People are going to kill me if I do that. Imagine this kind of conversation with Yahweh, the God Almighty, creator of the universe. And God pronounces a protection on him even under his curse. Do you think Cain believed God's promises? Sounds like to me he did. He believed the curses as well as the blessing. But his deeds were evil. And death was the result. And his brothers were righteous. He envied Abel. He gives us the statement. It's a purpose statement. The message that you had from the beginning was given for the purpose that you would love one another. He's already given us the content, right? The message is that believers who don't love other believers, are doing the devil's work. They're serving his authority and his house and seeking his inheritance, which is the world, and it's passing away. The purpose of the message is so that you do not do that. Instead, you love one another. This is not just a restatement of the content. He's saying this is why it was given. And that's important. It's not just so that we're without excuse when we don't love one another. God is not just looking there, looking for us to not love one another so he can smack us down. He actually wants us to do it. See, old school parents like mine kind of said that a lot. They would come to me and they would say, Josh, you know when I, I told you don't punch your brother in the face, don't fold him in the folding couch, don't do all of the things that we did to each other as brothers, right? I'm confessing to you guys, right? My sins, right? You're going to forgive me, right? Okay. I already confessed them to the other guy, to the brothers, right? Don't do all those things. When I told you not to do those things, I did not do that just to hear myself talk. Have you ever said that to your kids? 
you've thought it anyway, right? You were told by this woke generation that good parents don't say stuff like that. Good parents exactly say stuff like that. Good parents clearly communicate their purpose and their instruction. And God clearly communicates His purpose in the instruction. The purpose for the instruction is so that you would, in fact, love one another and not be like Cain. Not just so that He gets to punish you when you fall down. God sent the message, and He didn't do it just to hear Himself talk. He wants us to love one another. So understanding the message what we sometimes talk about academically, we understand the message. That doesn't achieve the purpose. You could go up to any unbeliever and say, hey, are you supposed to love people? And only the most, the absolute deepest, darkest, narcissistic pagans out there will say no. There are probably some you could find. But they state it as a hypothetical ideal. Like, yeah, 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 we should do that. That shouldn't be us. The purpose we've received it is so that we would do it. It's a negative example, right? Don't be like Cain. Don't be like Cain. Cain was the older brother. He was the younger brother. He was supposed to love his brother. Supposed to love his brother. It's something that I caution because it's something that I have experienced. I tell my sons this. I tell other people's sons if it's relevant. You will wish, children, that you loved your siblings better in your life. No matter how you love them today, you will wish, if you live long enough to have this experience, You will wish that you loved them better. Do you think that would be true of Cain? Probably. Wandering the earth with a target on his back. The only reason people aren't killing him is because God said, I will kill you worse. It's not how to make friends, is it? And when he acted in a way that was sourced from the devil, he killed his brother. Killed him. It wasn't an accident. Because his deeds were evil. Of course, that's the only kind of deed that comes from the evil one. Evil deeds. It's in the name, right? And Abel's were righteous. There was envy, right? And rather than repent and try again, and God seems to indicate that he could have done that, evil is crouching at the door and it seeks to have dominion over you. It seeks to master you. Rather than repent and try again, Cain decided to try and destroy the evidence. The only jury that I 
ever almost sat on. You may not realize this, but once people find out that we're pastors, we don't get to go on juries. This one, however, took nine hours to decide that they weren't going to put me on the jury. (sighs) Really painful, right? I knew I wasn't going to be on the jury. Nobody wants a pastor on the jury. The prosecution doesn't want people on the jury. This was a third strike felony. It's a really terrible human based on the felonies that he had already committed. These were not white-collar felonies. They were violent, terrible felonies. But the third strike was evidence tampering, which is a felony in its own right. He was trying to get out of another felony, so he committed that felony. Similar, right? Trying to destroy the evidence. Can you imagine being Cain? Who can get real chatty with Yahweh, right? Even in his fallen state. He knows what God sees. He knows what God accepts. And he thinks that he can hide the evidence somehow by tampering with it. Not the sharpest knife in the Happy Meal, as my sons say. Out of envy. Now understand, this is his actual brother. There are no charlatan brothers in 1 John. There is no facade of brothership. In Cain's case, that was his actual physical brother. When John uses the word brother, he does not mean a so-called brother, and that's cheap chicken baloney Bible study methods. Listen, y'all, I'm a baloney connoisseur. I know my bologna. If you're going to eat bologna, you fry the beef bologna with onions and hot mustard on a ciabatta roll or something. But cheap chicken bologna you give to the dog. And that's the kind of hermeneutics we're talking about here. When John says brother, that's an actual spiritual relationship. Cain killed his actual brother. That's important to your understanding, particularly when... John says something stark, like the children of the devil are the ones who do not love their brother. It's not that the children of the devil are a so-called brother who fail to love their might be a brother. It's not false. It's real. But their deeds are evil. No so-called brothers. In fact, the people who we know are not believers in here are never called brothers. The people who seceded, the people who deny that Jesus is the Messiah, John never calls them brothers. They're the ones that went out from us so that they would be known that they were not of us. Do not be surprised, brethren, verse 13. If the world hates you, don't marvel. Don't get surprised by much anymore. I find Christians all the time surprised that the world hates them. But it's kind of an odd statement right there, isn't it? Right in the middle of this progression of logic, it seems strange. It's a first-class conditional statement. You could probably say, do not be surprised, in this case, since or when, the world hates you. It's supposed to be normal. 
So don't be surprised by it. Don't be surprised when the next pandemic comes. Don't be surprised at the measures they take to do it. Don't be surprised that they're asking for amnesty. That kind of a thing, right? You shouldn't be surprised by it anymore. It's been going on a long time. The world has been hating you as a believer in Jesus Christ for a long time. But it just seems kind of odd right there to me. I think we need to understand it. it it's, uh, may not technically fit this definition, I guess. I think maybe it does. Latotus. Right? You know what latotus is? It's, you use it all the time. You may not even know how to spell latotus. I, this is not a spelling bee, right? You are not, you know, Ike Clanton from Tombstone. This is not a spelling bee, but latotus, you use it all the time. You might say, when listening to a brand new tractor rap song, you know what tractor rap is? Steve does not know what tractor rap is. You don't even listen to Luke Bryan, do you? Tractor rap. Barson listens to tractor rap, I bet. He's kind of a tractor rap kind of guy. I don't listen to it except by accident. But occasionally I get one and I say, you know, I don't hate that. Very rare. I don't hate that. What does that mean? I like that. I like that. This steak, see, we just had a triple B. Everybody, there was no leftover steak. Can you believe that? You know why? Because the steaks weren't bad. They were awfully good. Pretty much everybody got their steak cooked just about the way they wanted it. And the baked potatoes, you know, they weren't bad either. You might say to somebody, you know, you're not wrong. What do you mean? You're right. That's Latotus. So what is he saying? Do not be, do not marvel, Thalmazo. Do not be surprised when the world hates you, brethren. There's a warning here to us. And I think it really is that we not become jaded in the body of Christ. We should not be surprised when the world hates us, but we should not begin to accept as normal that we act in hateful ways towards each other. You should be surprised when a brother in the Lord hates you, or when you hate a brother in the Lord. Now, I'm a pastor. I know very almost nobody's going to come into my office and say, I just hate that dude's guts. That's not what I want. I don't even care. You stand before the Lord on your own two feet on all of these principles in 1 John. I'm just supposed to tell you what they are. It should be shocking when we look in the mirror and find that we have acted hatefully towards a believer in Jesus Christ. And we should acknowledge where it comes from. And we should confess it. Because we begin to accept things as normal, right? We're, love for one another is supposed to be the expectation within the body of Christ. That's supposed to be the normal. In fact, it is normative. It sets the standard. We should expect to give it, and we should expect to receive it. That should be normal. I can't tell you how many times I've been surprised. In the years that I have been teaching in churches, 
at somebody acting in a truly loving way towards me and my family. Because some of my experiences in church have been really hard. Especially in ministry. And I talk to people that have some similar experiences like that. And they're just astounded that the body of Christ loves them and lifts them up. And I should be like super happy about that, but I'm, I'm an overthinker. Are you an overthinker? I know some of you are overthinkers because I follow you on Facebook. Yeah. Some of you are overthinkers and you go, oh, crap, what does it mean that I'm so astounded by this? It's different than being incredibly thankful. Should always be thankful for it. And don't, you should, it should be surprising when we don't get loved by the body and when we don't love the body. Because sometimes when I state that expectation, you know, even other pastors are like, well, Josh, you're just being naive. If that's being naive, then I really don't want to resolve that. I'm not naive, by the way. I spent my whole life in church. I spent multiple years being a janitor at a mega church. You want to see the underbelly of an evangelical church, you go be the janitor for 2,000 other people. It's not naivete. I know what's out there. I know what people's church experiences are like. But I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm then surprised when people love each other. Love should never be anomalous in the church. Or we will never be joyful. Never. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Verse 14, our last verse today. We know knowledge, intimacy, experience. Right? Goes way back to the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not the tree of the existence of good and evil. There was a distinction between good and evil before the tree existed. The tree was of the knowledge of good and evil. It was about understanding by experience. That's why they weren't supposed to eat of it. Because there's only, really, there, well, I'll say there were two beings that understood at least, at minimum, two beings. They understood good and evil by experience, having experienced evil committed against them or that they committed against someone else, and that would be God and Lucifer. Humanity was innocent at that point. They knew it. So we want to keep that understanding of what knowledge is, that experiential knowledge. This is not a trust situation because you trust things that you don't have knowledge about. Right? People forget this. If you know everything there is to know about something, you're not trusting it anymore. You just know everything. Yes? I'm not in a trust position. That's why scriptures of faith ultimately becomes sight. Right now we walk by faith, not by sight. But there's not a faith is not a permanent eternal feature of our lives. We will be perfect. 
So John is saying in our lives now, in the body of Christ, we can know experientially that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Thankful when Scripture tells me I can know something. Because society increasingly tells me I can't know anything. John tells you you can know this. You know that you have passed out of death and into life. Now, you're going to laugh a little bit, and you should. Because in a minute here, and the word is metabino, means to go, and meta, well, you know what meta is. Are you in the metaverse? That big, fat, billion-dollar joke? Have you seen the graphics? I've seen graphics posted of the metaverse. No? The company now that owns Facebook called Meta? I think Zuckerberg is still actually just looking for a girlfriend in the metaverse because no one will date him in the real universe. But you don't know what the word meta means, so I want to... Because we use the word meta to say something that's not real. I'm glad you're not in the metaverse because that means you probably have your brain still functioning. The metaverse isn't real. It's a, it's a string of virtual realities stuck together so that you can experience something living your life on the couch. Don't we already have people doing that without virtual reality headsets on? They're trying to live their lives just sitting in their living room. They've been doing it for a while. That's not what this means. This is something real. Metabino means to move from one location to another. And we have knowledge of this. And it's not a statutory thing, not a legal standing thing, not a declaration. He said, in your experience, you have passed out of the experience of death into the experience of life. This is a question we get all the time. We tell people, believe in Jesus and you have eternal life, and you do. Jesus says that. It's the one condition. He who believes in me has eternal life. But what is the very next question that you get from people? How do I know? Well, ultimately, you will know because Jesus said so. But Jesus provides for the experience of life of that quality, of eternal quality experientially in your life. And you can know it in the same way that people know things throughout Scripture, and that is by experience. You can experience these things when you love the brothers. Not imaginary. It doesn't create a false reality. It is not built on a foundation of naivete despite what people claim. It's not some Pollyanna view of the church. But we can know that we're not building up the kingdom of death, but instead serving the kingdom of Jesus Christ and coming in the future. Not because we are loved by the brethren, but because we 
love the brethren. The knowledge is not based on what you get out of the deal. It's based on what you do. We get this question sometimes from people they ask us about church membership, and I've straight up I've been asked this, and they'll literally just say, well, what do I get out of it? What do I get out of it, being a member of the church? Not enough to make it worth it, apparently. Um, there's reasons for what we do in regards to that. But people approach their life within the body that way, you know? What am I going to receive? John doesn't place your experience of life based on how people love you. He says this is your knowledge of and your experience of this quality of life in your life now is based on how you love other people. Love the brethren. But if we don't, if we don't, he says, he who does not love remains in death, abides in death. That's where his knowledge lies. That's where his experience lies. You're experiencing death. That's your, that's your default, really. You love the world, the things that are passing away. You're investing it. You're doing what the devil would want you to do. You're doing evil things sourced out of the evil one. The sum total of your experience is going to be in that realm, in this life. It's not a joyful place. We can know that we're not acting under the authority of the kingdom of death, again, not because we are loved by the brethren, but because we love them. We continue otherwise to be operating under death's authority. Uh, the truth is that, uh, well, I have my qualms about saying it this way, but I think you're going to remember it. We're basically all illegals here. on this earth. We're strangers, aliens. Jesus says through John, don't love the world and its things because they're passing away. Your affinity is not supposed to be here. We shouldn't be focusing on our rights. We don't have any here, really, <laughs> intrinsically. And John just said, you shouldn't be surprised if the world hates you. So you don't have to. It's not your identity. But you can choose to dwell there, to remain there, to operate according to that system. Surrounded by people that don't love us, and really don't desire for us to love them. Have you ever noticed that in the world today? You talk about Jesus' love all the time, but I don't see it from you. 
Well, what definition of love is the world using? It's just unmitigated, unmoderated tolerance and permissiveness despite what is best for them. You can't even tell somebody what is I love you because I'm giving you truth that is best for you. I want you to change this behavior because it is best for you, because we love you, and we want you to not die. If you say that in the world, the world says you hate us, and we hate you for it. And they don't grow out of it. Like your, your kid eventually grows out of it, right? Like if you're a good parent, eventually your kids come to hate you for a little bit. Right? I mean, I mean, really? Eventually, they come to think you're an onerous tyrant that cannot, whose rule of tyranny cannot be borne by mortal man, even if it's only for a day or a year or a decade. But they grow out of it, usually. They grow out of it. The world doesn't grow out of it like a perpetual 13-year-old punk kid. No offense to our 13-year-old punk kids. All right, y'all aren't punk kids. But you know what I mean, on the bad part of this thing, on the bad side of it, they never grow out of it. So why would you choose to dwell there? But we can. We need to abide, love one another. Make it surprising when believers don't act lovingly towards each other. That's the life that Jesus wants us to live. That is, uh, in fact, that's what Steve read out of John 17. This is eternal life, that they would know you. That's the experiential aspect of it. It's a thing that you grow in by learning. And he provided that opportunity for us at a point in time. It's not something that we earned. It's something that was provided for us. It is not an example for us to follow. But it is a gift to experience, to receive, simply by grace through faith. And it was purchased with that price. I think we sang a song with those lyrics. His life was the cost this morning. Appropriate remembrance. Um, that his body was broken for us, that he took our place on the cross as a substitution for, our, for us, as a price to pay. So I'm going to spend, uh, we're remembering that this morning, the Lord's table, communion, and uh, we invite everybody to participate at the Lord's table. This is not El Paso Bible Church's table. Uh, if you know that you have eternal life simply by believing in Jesus Christ this morning, we ask that you would participate with us. Uh, scripture does warn that we should do so properly, and it's very specifically in the context of 1 Corinthians. Uh, the little part that we read that y'all know by heart now, right, that's in the context of instructions about how not to do it. And the warning is that because of the way believers were failing to love each other, even inside the church service, inside the observation of communion, that they were, they were hating each other. 
treating each other badly, and because of that, some had even passed away. Their lives were cut short because of the way they were treating each other. So it's a dire, it's a dire warning. And so I, I don't want us to proceed without understanding the importance of fellowship with each other, <laughs> loving each other, even as we observe this remembrance. And I know when I say that, some people are like, You're, again, I get the idea of naivete. Listen, I mean it. If you have something, well, my dad would say this, if you've got a beef with somebody, you better get up and fix it before you remember this and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's a scriptural principle. And no one's going to judge you for it. Okay? All right. I hope that it's not true. I've never seen anybody get up when somebody says that and go confess to somebody a problem that they had, a beef that they had with somebody. I've never seen it. That again, I'm usually looking this way. It could have happened, which is okay. But I do mean it. I do mean it. I'm going to give you a few moments to talk to God and maybe deal with those situations. And then I'll ask the men to come forward. Men, if you would come forward.
darkest night You are close like no For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this day, and thank you for your grace to us, and for the marvelous plan of salvation that you have provided and enacted on our behalf, the love that you have bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. We thank you for it, and we love you. Father, we thank you also for this food you provided for us, and pray that you would bless it to your glory today in our lives. In your Son's name we pray, amen.
you stand, we'll dismiss to lunch with this chorus. Guys, you know the drill. We got to have some tables and chairs out uh, in order to eat. So if you could help us with that, we'll get going. <laughs> 